Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Listen, I know what a threat fake news poses and bad information. It's everywhere. I know. I get it. I don't at all mean to understate the significance of that or the dangers of that, but I remain optimistic because we, when I say we, I mean those of us who have managed to survive all kinds of crazy, we have because we're here, we've come through all kinds of crazy before, like the time in 19th century New York when a series of news articles reported that man bats, yes, uh, man bats, as in humanoids, humanoid creatures with bat wings had been spotted on the moon, praying in their temples to their man bat gods, and people believed this, amongst other things. Author Matthew Goodman wrote a great book about this story. It's called The Sun and the Moon. Uh, Matthew is uh, here with me now. Listen to our conversation. Remember, we've come through crazy before, my friends, and we will do it again. Here I am with author Matthew Goodman. He wrote The Sun and the Moon. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew Goodman. So this story is pretty remarkable. The August 25th, 1835 edition of the New York Sun reports that there is a new technology that is allowing earthlings to see moon life. Matthew, welcome. And what, what was this technology that the Sun reported on in 1835? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. As you mentioned, in August of 1835, the readers of the New York Sun newspaper were shocked and uh, overjoyed to discover that according to this article, there had been an invention of a revolutionary new telescope known as the Hydro Oxygen Telescope that had uh, allegedly purportedly been invented by the great astronomer John Herschel in South Africa. And that by means of this new telescope, he was making remarkable discoveries on the moon. And over the course of the next six episodes, shall we say, of this series, the readers of The Sun were treated to ever more amazing discoveries that had been made on the moon. So in the beginning, it was just sort of, uh, you know, poppies were found, you know, in pastures. But then you got increasingly complex forms of life that were discovered. So uh, you know, you had horned bison were discovered and veiled sheep and biped beavers, beavers who were able to walk on their hind legs and had discovered the secret of fire, apparently. And then in the series crowning uh, touch, the discovery of four foot tall man bats, the so-called Vespertilio Homo as Herschel was said to have dubbed them, these sort of humanoid creatures who who talked and flew and built temples and made art and, and so forth. And uh, it just caused an absolute sensation in New York. In addition, Matthew, to the man bats, there was another species of humanoid that was found. And I'm quoting from the articles, this other species were, quote, of a larger stature than the former specimens, less dark in color, and in every respect, an improved variety of the race. So it just so happens that on the moon in 1835, when America yeah. is fighting about race, 
we see the dark bat people and the taller, fairer, much improved, uh, lighter humanoids. It's a very perceptive point. And, you know, we can talk about this because as it turns out, of course, there was no hydro-oxygen telescope. What? You're there kidding. Were no, obviously, discoveries on the moon. And the series had, in fact, been the creation of the editor of the Sun newspaper, who was a, uh, an expatriate Englishman by the name of Richard Adams Locke, this very erudite guy who had actually been uh, exiled from England for his radical positions on various matters. And he was really the only editor in New York who was vehemently opposed to the institution of slavery, uh, really alone among the papers of New York, really to New York's eternal discredit. It was the northern city that was probably most aligned with the South on slavery because the New York economy, the, the Virgin and Garment District, was very wrapped up with the cotton of the South. And so there were economic considerations that were involved in this. But Locke didn't hold to any of this, and he was very adamant in his opposition to slavery. It was really a courageous position to take in New York in the year 1835. And as we can discuss, this series was actually a satire, was actually not, you know, he, he didn't intend for it to be believed, although it was believed. It was a satire of uh, the astronomers, really the religious astronomers of the time, but you can see his own political ideas sort of osmosing into other aspects of the story, as you so as you so perceptively point out. There are little hints of other things, and one of them, I think, has to do with his opposition to to, uh, to white supremacy. He meant it as satire, but yes. the viewers or the readership rather didn't take it as a satire. And in fact, Matthew didn't a number of other very reputable outlets reprint the series as yes. if it were true, as if we discovered some new technology that's allowing us to see man bats on the moon. Absolutely. People believed it, right? Absolutely. It was probably the most successful hoax in the history of American journalism, even though it had not been intended uh, as a hoax. The Sun, which had all, which was a, a newspaper that was only two years old, that had only been created in 1833, it was the first of the so-called penny papers, the papers that were intended not for the aristocrats of the city, but for the average people, the common you know, man and woman of the city. It only cost one penny, so they could afford it. Well, by the time this series was over, The Sun, this upstart paper, this working-class paper, was the most widely read newspaper in the entire world, even more widely read than the, the powerful Times of London, uh, that, that you know, great institutional paper there. So yes, The Sun really established itself on the basis of this hoax, and as you, as you point out, their rival papers, seeing the popularity of this series, did what they felt they needed to do, which was to reprint the series in their own pages, claiming that they, too, had been given the original scientific journal in which these so-called articles had appeared. But, of course, there was no scientific journal. They were simply reprinting them from the pages of The Sun itself. It was estimated at the time that nine out of 10 New Yorkers believed the articles. That was in part due to Locke's erudition, his great 
uh, knowledge of science and of astronomy. And it also had to do with the fact, as I talk about in my book, the American people had really been primed to believe that such a thing could be true, that there could be life on the moon. And the reason for that is because of the astronomers of the time, the popular astronomers of the time, who believed that there must be life on the moon, and not just on the moon, but on all of the orbs of the heavens, all of the planets, all of the stars, even, even the sun, because God, in his infinite wisdom, would not create these celestial objects without also creating intelligent beings there to appreciate them. That was the general belief. And so you saw in the pages of legitimate, respected scientific journals of the day, discussions of what do these creatures look like? And there was some discussion that the creatures of Jupiter and Saturn would have very big eyes to compensate for the dim light of the sun in the distance, and that the inhabitants of comets would be a race of astronomers because they had such a good view of the universe as they went zipping <laughs> and zipping around it and so forth. And, you know, there were various proposals put out in these scientific journals of how we can communicate with our closest neighbors, the residents of the moon, by means of you know, vast geometric figures on the plains of Siberia and so forth. Well, Richard Adams Locke thought this was all nonsense and thought that this was, in fact, theology masking as religion. He was someone who believed very strongly in the free play of scientific inquiry. He was very concerned about the domination of science by religion. He, um, he, he had two friends who were geologists who felt that they were going to have to leave their profession because their research was indicating that the earth was, in fact, millions of years old, if not billions of years old, and not, in fact, 4,000 years old, as had been put out by the Bishop of Ireland, uh, you know, in his, uh, according to his biblical calculations and so forth. Well, this was very concerning to Locke, and so he decided that he was going to write a series that satirized the ideas of these religious astronomers. And, and you know, in his mind, he was thinking, oh, well, if you believe that there are creatures on the moon, I will give you creatures on the moon. And if you believe that they must have religion because they have to believe in God, then I will give you uh, man-bats who build lunar temples. And I will dress it up in all of this kind of high-flown scientific language, just as you do. And in so doing, expose, attempt to expose the falsity of the ideas of these religious astronomers. But in point of fact, he did it so well that he was simply believed. And ultimately, he confided later to a friend that he was the best self-hoaxed man in the entire community talk for a moment about why New Yorkers were so eager to believe this. You alluded to it earlier. Uh, New York, while uh, I think by 1835, it may have abolished slavery. It was very sympathetic to slavery. It was dangerous, in fact, to be an abolitionist just, during the time. Abolished 
slavery. And, and yes, it was very hostile to abolitionists. And in fact, you write about this in your book, The Sun and the Moon, that abolitionists were like, I'm not leaving the house. They are like, it was a very, very, very violent atmosphere and that pro-slavery advocates uh, were on the attack. Locke is an abolitionist. He writes this satire, but people believe it, right? Because it's a distraction. It's a distraction from the race riots. It's a distraction from the high prices, right? I mean, doesn't that kind of explain a bit, and you go into such great detail about it in your book, but talk a bit about the mentality, like what was going on with folks that made them so eager to look for this distraction. Yeah, that's an excellent point. You know, ultimately, you have a, a situation which was kind of overdetermined in the sense that there were a lot of historical forces that were going on in New York at that time that helped to make this such a powerful series. One of them, as you as you were just talking about, was the great tension in the city over questions of slavery and abolition. And as I discuss in my book, you know, as you just as you just mentioned. You know, abolitionists were getting hunted down on the streets of the city and beaten by mobs. And Locke, in fact, said later, well, at least I gave people a respite from, from, you know, the thoughts about slavery and so forth. So that was definitely going on. Another thing that was going on, not just in New York, but, but especially in New York, were these great scientific discoveries that were being made at that time. You know, the microscope had just had just become sort of a pop, becomes kind of a popular invention, and suddenly life was being discovered in drops of water, which was something that was, it, it freaked people out, but it also was amazing. You know, the idea that there was actually life that was too small for the naked eye to see, that that you could only see through this very powerful microscope. Well, if that was true about a microscope, why couldn't that also be true about a telescope? You know, it led people to think, well, maybe this really could be true. And the other thing that was going on, and this also speaks to a kind of racialized situation in the city at the time, this was really the moment of the great hoaxers, you know, in New York. That very same month, amazingly enough, August of 1835, a young would-be promoter from Connecticut came to New York with his first promotion, a woman by the name of Joyce Heth, who he claimed was 161 years old, an African-American woman, and had been the nursemaid to the infant, to the baby, George Washington, in his cradle, Joyce Heth. And he exhibited her, this old black woman, as this 161-year-old woman. And New Yorkers believed in that as well and went to see her, asked her questions about the baby George Washington and so forth. That was P.T. Barnum. That promoter was P.T. Barnum. That was the very first of P.T. Barnum's promotions was this racialized promotion. So it was a time of hoaxes. It was a time of scientific discoveries. It was a time of racial tensions. It was a time of religious of, of theology masking as astronomy and, and sort of the combination of all of these things created a very fertile soil for for this type of thing to, to develop. There were some skeptics, though. There yeah. were a few skeptics, I don't know, maybe more than a few, but certainly a very famous skeptic, Edgar Allan Poe, who had his own reasons for wanting to cast doubt 
on uh, on the moon story. Why was Edgar Allan Poe so involved in this? And you know, what was his stake in all of this? Edgar Allan Poe is another one of the, the sort of sub-characters of my story, who also is part and parcel of this whole atmosphere of hoaxing and counter-hoaxing of the period along with Barnum and Locke. Edgar Allan Poe was a young writer at the time living in Virginia. He had come down to Virginia from Boston, where he had been living uh, previous to that. And not long before the hoax appeared, the moon hoax appeared in the pages of the sun, he had written a short story which imagined a trip to the sun, by, uh, to the moon, by means of uh, a great balloon, a story called Edgar Fall. And the thing about Edgar Allan Poe was that he was as competitive as they come and as prideful as they come. And he was convinced that Richard Adams Locke had stolen his idea in order to write his moon hoax. That wasn't true, by the way, but, but Poe was absolutely convinced of it. And he railed against this series. And nine years later, when he moved back to New York, the very first thing that he did upon his arrival in New York was to go to the Sun with his own hoax for them to publish so that he could prove once and for all that he was the greatest hoaxer of all. But that didn't work out very well, in part because he then got drunk and stood in the middle of the square and, and announced that he had written, you know, because he, he couldn't let it be anonymous. Uh, but yes, Edgar Allan Poe was involved in this as well. It's so interesting because, you know, I think these days people are concerned that with the rise of social media and the ability to communicate so quickly with one another, that we are in a unique period in time in terms of spreading false information. Now, certainly in 1835, you couldn't spread a hoax as quickly as you could today, but this did spread and it was believed and reprinted and reprinted by uh, really serious periodicals. So when does Locke say, hey, everybody, I was just pulling your leg and making fun of you. When does, there, when does that happen? Well, actually, the first part of your question is a really good question, which we can get into, which is about social media today and hoaxes today mm. and, and the sort of what does this story have to tell us about about today? That's a very important uh, topic, I think. But but in terms of what happened with Locke, he didn't feel that it was his right to tell the truth of the story because he was working on salary for the publisher of his paper, a guy named Benjamin Day. And so he felt it was Benjamin Day's decision about whether or not to ultimately reveal this. But what ended up happening was that, you know, Locke was a big drinker. Uh, he was an alcoholic. And he was out drinking one night. This is about, uh, I think, about a couple of weeks after the series ran. And he was drinking with a fellow newspaper man in downtown New York. And they were getting drunk. And this guy, who was the editor of a paper called The Journal of Commerce, uh, said to him, you know, we're going to be running your, your paper series, you know, the moon hoax in our pages. And Locke, who was drunk, tongue loosened by drink, as they say, burst out, blurted out, don't run that. <laughs> I wrote it, right? Something, I think, as a word to the wise, to his friend, you know, as a sort of, you know, uh, you know, be careful about that. But his friend didn't take it as that. His friend took it as a scoop. And they ran an article that, 
you know, announced that Richard Adams Locke had admitted, you know, that he had in fact written this article. And that's how, you know, the story came out. And Locke, you know, the rest of Locke's life, he was really identified as being a hoaxer, which again was not at all what he had uh, intended. You know, he never saw himself. Uh, well, he intended it as satire. And in fairness, there were some clues because the original yes. series, right, was purported to have been reprinted from an Edinburgh Edinburgh uh, Science Journal. That if anybody looked or tried to reach out to that journal and say, "Hey, we saw your piece in the New York Sun. Can you confirm this?" They would have discovered that that journal had been was out of print for about four years pre prior. So there were clues. Exactly. So. Yes. Yes. Look, there were all kinds of clues that Locke had put in there that he was sure was going to give the game away. You know, one of them was that, that he gave the journal that he supposedly had taken the articles from, from uh, a defunct journal that didn't even exist any longer, as you, as you point out. You know, he had filled the um, craters of the moon with water, which every astronomer knew was not true. Really, most, I think, most glaringly, he had gradated, you know, the discoveries. Herschel supposedly first saw just plant life, and then he saw simple animal life, and then he saw more complicated animal life. And then in the final episode, he sees these incredible flying man bats. Uh, well, that's not the way that's not the way this works, where you start by seeing, you know, the, the uncomplicated things. And then you, you know, that's the way a narrative works. That's not the way astronomy works. Right. Locke thought, well, this will make for a good story. But nobody could possibly believe that this is the way Herschel was actually seeing this. Uh, and in fact, Herschel himself was in South Africa, was in the observatory in South Africa at that time making uh, observations of the southern sky and had no idea that any of this was going on. This was, of course, before the days of the telegraph. And the way that he discovered this was that a New Yorker who ran a zoo in New York had gone, had taken a boat to South Africa because he was looking for a giraffe to put in his zoo. And he was staying in the same hotel as John Herschel in South Africa and he went up to John Herschel and congratulated him for his remarkable discoveries on the moon. And Herschel said, what remarkable discoveries <laughs> on the moon? And that's how it, you know, it, you know, was announced to John Herschel that, uh, that this was all going on. Now, today, of course, and this, this, I guess, speaks to the point that you were making before, this couldn't happen today because somebody would just send a text to John Herschel and say, did you, or send an email or whatever, uh, you know, to John Herschel and say, did you make these discoveries? And he would text back and say, no, I absolutely did not. And that would be it. And the only way that uh, Richard Adams Locke was able to do this was that he knew that, that mail would take many weeks getting there and back. And so he had a, a, a window of time in which Herschel would not be able to deny uh, the claims made in his name. Now, today, we could not do this. And, you know, when, when my book came out and I was doing, you know, uh, talks about it around the, around the country, you know, people would say like, oh, well, you know, this kind of thing could never happen today. 
you know, because the technology is too good and, you know, we're too sophisticated and so forth. Well, it happened that my book was coming out right around the time that Barack Obama was getting reelected or maybe even elected for the first time. And I remember saying to them, well, on the day of the election, a majority of the Republican voters of Texas believed that Barack Obama was a Muslim. That's a hoax. That's a hoax that's spread by the Internet, right? So technology, in a way, makes certain types of hoaxes impossible, like this one, but it makes other types of hoaxes very much possible. And, uh, and to spread with a kind of speed and power that Richard Adams Locke could never even have dreamed of, right? And now today... You know, we have hoaxes like the QAnon hoaxes, the pizzeria hoax, you know, about whatever was going on down there. And, well, you know, the fact that QAnon is supposed to be some like all wise revealer of government secrets and so forth, believed by millions and millions of people. That's an Internet hoax, you know, that's spread by means of social media and so forth. So I don't think that we as a people are any more sophisticated today than we were then. I don't think that we have necessarily any better critical skills as a people than we did then. And I think that really the lesson of the moon hoax is to be very careful about hoaxes that seem to confirm what it is that you want to believe anyway. That's when a hoax is successful. The moon hoax was successful because it confirmed what people wanted to believe anyway, which is that we were not alone in the universe, that God was benevolent, that God had created intelligent life all, all around us. That was a very comforting notion. And so people wanted to believe it, and this seemed to confirm what they wanted to believe anyway. This business, you know, this nonsense about Obama being a Muslim confirmed what people wanted to believe anyway, which was that Barack Obama was somehow not American or not, you know, all of that nonsense. And the same thing with the QAnon stuff today. It confirms what people want already to believe. So, so the lesson, I think, of this story is that we have to be exceedingly careful to be critical, to believe in evidence, to believe in data, and to examine our own assumptions, I think, and not believe in things simply because they feel good to, to believe in them. Our only defense to the hoax in either 1835 or 2023 is a critical mind and a healthy skepticism. Matthew Goodman, author of The Sun and the Moon. It's a fantastic book, great read, incredible story. It reads like a novel and sadly it's not. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate oh, your my time. Pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.